waiting for Brian, but while we're waiting, I'll tell you an irrelevant story about waiting for a lecture to start. <laughs> Maybe you'll find it profound. <laughs> I invited this Korean teacher to give a talk at Tassahara, and I drove him down there, and, and it was an evening talk, and I showed him all the forms about getting on to the, you know, the place to give a talk, and and he sat down, and then he sat there, and I thought, oh well, I guess in his tradition they sit, you know, before they start, and then we sat there, and ten minutes, twenty minutes, <laughs> thirty minutes. <laughs> Forty minutes, <laughs> and then I forget it was it was oh, more than forty minutes, and then he started and then he gave his talk and it was a great talk. He's a great guy. And then afterwards, you know, we were chatting, and I said, "Do you always sit that long before you start?" And he said, "I was waiting for you to tell me to start." <laughs> He said, I kept thinking, you know, they sit this long before they have their talk. <laughs> it, it, it's like, it, you know, in Zen the schedule is very important. Uh, uh, but so so it like, we, we sat and then he gave this long talk and then it was about 11 o'clock at night. <laughs> and he said, Let's go for a hot bath. <laughs> so we went for a hot bath together in the dark, in the moonlight. And uh, and it made for a very uh, special evening, you know. I, I don't know what the profound teaching of it is. But the, you know, and and he was from another tradition, you know, another Zen tradition. Uh, but somehow, uh, the whole thing felt very, uh, very like part of the family, you know. Oh, here's my cousin from Korea, and and he's here visiting, and we're trying to figure each other out, and. And I guess we missed on that one, so let's take a hot <laughs> bath. <laughs> and it was very sweet. You know? It's funny, I don't remember a single thing he talked about. Yeah. <laughs> so interesting the way our mind works, you know? I remember going for a hot bath, but I don't remember. <laughs> the extent of his dharma. And I want to start with a story about Hakuin Zenji, a, uh, a very notable uh, Zen teacher in Japan. Um, and I always thought this incident that I'm going to tell you this story was was actually made up. You know, I have a skeptical mind. I, 
I think most Buddhist stories are just made up. I remember when Gil wrote a little book called um, Monastery Within. And, and I said, and, and where'd you get all those stories, Gil? He says, I made them up. <laughs> 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 and I thought, in keeping with the Buddhist tradition. <laughs> In Ireland, we say, why would you let a few facts get in the way of a good story? (laughs) 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 So I always thought this story, and I still have some skepticism about it, but here's the story. Akonwun was practicing near a little town, in a kind of a cave or secluded area. And he'd been there a while, and one of the girls in the town, in the small town, got pregnant. And and, uh, and then her parents wanted to know who was the father. And, and it, it was someone that she um, was wanted to protect. So she was in a bind. She didn't want to say who the real father was. So she said, um... That monk, <laughs> that monk who lives out on the edge of town, and, uh, and and so then the baby was born, and then after the baby was a little bit old, I don't know how old, uh, maybe two three months, they went out there, and the and the you know a, a congregation of people went out there and said, hey, listen, you got the daughter pregnant, so you have to take care of the baby. And Ackerman just said, is that so? Didn't contradict them, didn't attempt to defend himself in any way whatsoever. Just said, is that so? And he took the baby. And then he, um, he cared for the baby. And he needed baby food, you know, and part of his tradition was he he would go begging for food each day uh, in the monastic tradition. And, you know, and he'd get some rice and then he would say, uh, do you have any baby food, you know? And he actually kept a diary and in his diary, you know, he noted like, that was like, that really set people off. You know, when he asked for baby food, you know, <laughs> they like go ballistic, you know. You lecherous, you know. You know, and then, then you have the nerve to act like a monk and beg for food and ask for baby food, you know. And, and, and he just did this every day. And he, and he just like, okay, this is my life. You know, this is how it is for me. Um, And then he, he kept the baby for about six months. But all this time, the tension was building for the girl. You know, it's like, she just couldn't bear that she'd created this grand deception. She just couldn't keep living it. And then, so at one point she said, okay, I lied. He wasn't the father. It was this guy was the father, and I want to marry this guy, and I know you don't like him, and but I want to marry him anyway. 
And then everybody was astounded. It's like, this guy? We, we insulted him, we abused him, you know, we criticized him. And he didn't say a word. <laughs> like he didn't. He didn't even try to contradict it. Call the girl a liar. You know, try to find the real father. He just said, "Is that so?" And so they all went out there to where he was living, and they were saying, "You know, how could we have been so stupid? You are such an amazing, virtuous person. You know, and we couldn't see it. We're so so sorry." You know, we see now what an amazing, deep practitioner you are. And Hakuman said, is that so? (laughs) 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 And and just to think, you know, what is that kind of... uh, solidity, you know, that you just meet your life, okay, I'm being accused of something completely inappropriately. <laughs> and it's pretty nasty. And it really impacts me. It impacts, you know, how I'm living. And now I have this, you know, infant to take care of. And, um, and, and that kind of... Um, capacity to absorb the causes and conditions of your life. Is that so? This is my life. Is that so? Here's what's coming up for me. Is that so? Here's what other people are saying about me. Is that so? And what what makes it all the more intriguing was that Before Hakuen um, had a deep experience of practice, he uh, he was somehow as he was practicing, it put him into an ever-increasing agitated state, and he had this thing about death, and it really uh, it built up for him in a very um, unsettling way. Like he was on the verge of some kind of nervous breakdown or something. And and the story is that he went to a Taoist healer. Even though he was a Buddhist monk and a Buddhist practitioner, he went to a Taoist healer and this healer taught him a certain visualization and practice for letting um, this agitation, distress, it was really consuming him, letting it seep down and flow out. And then Hakuin went on to be this um, extraordinary Renaissance character. He, um, he was an extraordinary teacher. People, not just Zen Buddhists, but all sorts of Buddhists and beyond would come for his teaching. And Hakuin had this extraordinary versatility to how he taught, you know? Over here, 
he'd be strict and disciplined and demanding with the monks. Over here, he'd be folksy and generous and with, with people's problems, and, and he'd relate to people from pure land and all sorts. It's amazing adaptability and versatility in how he was and what he taught. And he also um, had an extraordinary um, writing style. If you ever get a chance to read some of his commentaries, the, the his use of language and imagery is extraordinary. A and his poetry. And he was an extraordinary artist. He drew several portraits of himself. And in his portraits, he always looked really stupid. He had this kind of like really stupid look on his face. <laughs> <laughs> and he did some amazing sculptures too. So this person, going from this kind of distressed, agitated, preoccupied place, and then somehow, um, this kind of spacious, accepting resilience, is that so? You think of any one of us and, and the things that bother us. Yeah. It's like w when you watch yourself when you're on a retreat, you know, and, and you watch, you, you're trying to get your cushions just right, you know, and, and like trying to set up the ideal situation. And, you know, should I drink some water now? Well, maybe. Or maybe later, hot water or cold water. <laughs> uh, and shall I take my uh, jacket off or keep it on? And th this this way. Um, our vulnerability. You know, it's just uh, comes right to the surface. Yeah. It, it's it's like we create our own deep challenge. Yeah. And of course, it's it's the rising up of the causes and conditions of our life. And the reason I used to think that was a made-up story was because, you know, as mythologies often are, the archetype has the kind of idealized presentation, you know, unflinching, heroic, steadfast, you know, is that so? And uh, 
And who knows what details were dropped out of that to give it, let it, to polish it and let it shine so bright. Um, and how in our lives, um, the heroic request comes in the context of all the other things going on for us. You know? so this is part of the context of retreat. You know, you, much as we'd like to create the pristine environment, you know, I'll get settled. I, I'll, I'll, I'll start to get concentrated. My body will soften. My mind will clear. You know, there, there will be a rising shraddha, confidence, trust. You know, I'll start to see more clearly that what's arising is constructs, that they're just the activity of now. Um, and of course we have some of that, or sometimes we have a lot of that. You know? And sometimes we don't. And along with it, this quivering vulnerability of our human life. You know? You know, Gil and I taught a retreat way back in the humble days of Hidden Villa. And um, before this jade palace. <laughs> Where there's like the perfect number of lights in the ceiling so we can create the perfect luminosity <laughs> for each occasion. Um, so we, we taught then, but we didn't actually talk too much about this retreat. And it's been striking to me that as we both practice, you know, and maybe it's about ourselves, you know, but this seeing as valuable teaching, this um, patient, gentle, deliberate way of engaging your own stuff. Yeah. It's, it's like bringing forth the trust the reassurance that can say, is that so? Yeah. Like, like that's what it is to just open up to what arises in the moment. Yeah. In, in the midst of our efforts, you know, to stimulate a condition that's acceptable by whatever standards, conscious or unconscious, we're doing it. The karmic arisings appear, you know. Sometimes powerful and blatant and demanding. 
and sometimes subtle little details as we fiddle with our cushion. You know, oh, it's three hundredths of an inch too high. <laughs> yeah, I'll take a dime. I'll shave a, a fraction off it. I'll raise it. It'd be better if I had two support cushions there instead of one. Um, it's as we try to set forth the mandala that will support reassurance, that will facilitate acceptance. Huh? so that we can sit upright and explore what is the wise and crazy activity of is that so? To whatever comes up, you know? This is uh, the heart of mindfulness practice. What, what our experience whatever is being experienced. Don't get busy turning it in to what you'd rather it was, what would be more acceptable, less intimidating, however, whatever modification seems appropriate. And this paramita, you know, the, the sixth paramita is uh, prajna, wisdom. And if you think about it, think about those moments of insight when something that's just been part of your patterned existence, maybe some behavior you have or, or some um, mental or emotional activity, and then you, you see it. And there's an insight. Ha! Ah. You know? That happens. And that's a common thing. But in this moment, it has come into awareness. You know? In, in this moment of seeing clearly this moment of feeling clearly. No. This moment of, so it is. No. It, it, it's not surrounded or distracted by the urgencies, the competing urgencies of our life. No. And in a way, this thread, th this request of seeing just as it is, of feeling just as it is, as being just as it is, this is the illuminating quality that gives rise to insight. Just as it is, 
is not enmeshed in the agendas of the world according to me, the me according to me, what's best according to me, what needs to be avoided according to me. You know, when, when that's uh, asserting its influence, something is clouded, something is not evident, something is not available for being seen clearly. And, and, and even though, you know, we could step back and, you know, maybe feel chagrined or ashamed or disappointed at our own efforts to set up a conducive environment, in, in a way it's part of our heritage, you know. In, in a way, the nature of settledness, the nature of samadhi is it does facilitate because of the environment of being it creates. But in the practice of mindfulness, the environment and the foundation samadhi creates is to open up to whatever happens. And very interestingly, samadhi is not the only way insight can arise. You know, if, if we think about our life um, and we think about moments where there was a teaching, If you think about Hakawan's life, and these two stories that I told you, both seminal and um, considered, in their own way, pivotal. You know, this this acknowledging they had a real issue to work with, and that he needed to work with it in the terms that it needed to be worked with. And this other one, where a certain imperturbability, is that so? Yeah. What, what is that? Strength of character? Um, Non-attachment? Thorough resolve? Um, profound non-harming? It's like normally in our lives, there's all sorts of agendas going along, you know. Some, a lot of them quite mundane, you know. I've got to get from here to there to do this. And I've got to do this so this can happen. Um, And our practice, the practice, the vow of practice, is in the middle of that, in the heart of that, 
can the request, can the agenda of practice uh, engage those other activities as the expression of practice? How does this activity be illuminated as an activity of practice? How do we see uh, our own emotions and attending to our own emotions as an expression of practice? This is insight. And sometimes we see them as the workings of me. You know, sometimes it's um, in that mode. Oh, here is my emotional pattern. Sometimes it's it's instructive when something has a charge. Don't worry about the details of the event. Study your responses, your emotions, your reactions, your behaviors. You know. We we, we study the, the karmic array of me, and we get information. Hmm. And it's it's sometimes very interesting. Something, sometimes it's something. Yeah, I knew that, but in a way I hadn't fully recognized or acknowledged. Huh? And sometimes, even on our cushion, when we open up fully to an emotion, um, there's a fuller teaching to it. You know. Sometimes it's about feeling the intensity of the emotion. Sometimes it's about um, the emotion, seeing the emotion, how it creates its own landscape, its own sense of self, its own way of relating to the world. Is that so? That's what's arising in that karmic formation. And and just to see them, we can carry into our relatedness. How do I relate to this person? What projections, what anticipations, what stories do I insist about them? And how do I respond to how they are? So, in a clear seeing, th- there is a um, a version of insight. Sometimes it's not called insight; it's called more seeing the conditioned nature. And then a very interesting thing. 
as the mind, as consciousness, does start to settle, as as it uh, is less energizing of the karmic agendas, as, as the energy of involvement is more engaging the particulars and the phenomena, there's another more thorough kind of perceptiveness. Hmm? We see more than just the construct of our thoughts and feelings. We, we, we start to see, sometimes we start to see the context, we start to see how things are being set up. We, we start to see the context and the, the context of the village, the girl, the baby, you know? And in that context, Hakuin goes from villain to saint. But actually, he, he didn't change that much at all. The context uh, transformed him, transformed him into a villain and transformed him into a saint. Is that so? And as awareness um, makes apparent this conditioned nature, it offers another kind of reassurance. And in a way it's different from the karmic reassurance. The karmic reassurance is more like, okay, this is the way I like it. You know, this meets my agendas, this meets my approval. Um, when the mind settles, it's a dharmic reassurance. This is the nature of existence. And in non-attachment, in non-grasping and non-aversion, it's showing the path of liberation. Sometimes when we have these moments, um, it's almost like a sweet sorrow. Sometimes even tears, you know? kind of a sweet sorrow about karmic life. A sweet sorrow about something I've been holding so tight is starting to loosen. And the way the world is seen, the way the self is seen, it is has a different um, context to it. 
And then as the mind settles more deeply, um, it, it's more like um, the other marks, the other Dharma seals, like impermanence. You know? Everything truly does come into being and go out of being. Yeah, yeah, I know that. I've heard that. I believe it. I've seen it. But everything, without exception, is in a state of flux. There is nothing solid and abiding. In some ways, these states, these more saddle states, can sound um, abstract, exotic, or maybe just plain old irrelevant. Yeah. But the interesting nature of our life is um, sometimes they just come crashing through. You know. Uh, Remember once I, I was going to the local grocery store in San Francisco, and I was turning the corner outside the front of the store, and someone who was parked pulled forward, and we had like a fender bender actually hit the side of my car. But it kind of shook my world, you know? I was just going to the grocery store thinking, oh yeah, I'm going to get groceries, it's rainbow, they've got good organic <laughs> food, and <laughs> and it's a work-around co-op, and, <laughs> and my world's tidily and predictably in place. And then you just, boom. Huh? And, and I remember just being... Um, being a little disturbed and being kind of amazed that I was disturbed, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but I was, you know, he's like, so I'm not disturbed, it's just a fender bender. But I was, you know? And it, it, you know, in, in my brain saying, yeah, you know, insurance is going to cover it, you know, it's, it's no big deal, it's, it's, he's not hurt, I'm not hurt, and I got an old beat-up car anyway, so what's another bump on it? <laughs> but just in that moment, my world was shaken by impermanence. Yeah. In that moment, I got a direct experience that my being can't rely on holding the world in place. Then I had a great exchange with the guy. We both cut out, we smiled. And um, 
exchanged. And then after a moment, you know, of being quite pleasant with each other, it was quite lovely. And then either one of us said, well, you know, it was your fault. (laughs) 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 And the other one said, well, you know, it was your fault. (laughs) 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 And then we agreed to disagree. So these moments come through, you know. You know, uh, and often they're maybe they're not all traumatic, but sometimes they come through the the notable change, the notable impermanence is bad news. You hear that someone is ill. You know? Think, oh, pancreatic cancer. Oh, it's metastasized. Okay, it's stage four. And, um, Not only is that so to the fact, not only is that so to the way the world has been shaken, but also to the humanness that we care. Yeah, I'm saddened. I'm concerned for the person. Um, is that so? You know, this is the uh, the way we absorb and live the core truths of practice. The, the, in, in the absorbing and living them, the the wisdom of practice permeates our being, permeates our lives, permeates how we are. It it helps us become um, aware of our oh no. No? You know, whether it's just um, We get angry, or whether it's just um, we're shaken, we're a little agitated, we're confused, you know? This request of, is that so? It's enacting the wisdom of practice. And in the enacting, there's realization. So there's this beautiful process of citta bhavana and the realization that 
is brought about by samadhi. And then there is this way of engaging life that's offering us these teachings. And of course, the impermanence isn't always, you know, negative. You know? Wonderful things happen too, you know. If you've ever been present for a baby being born, it's, I find it unbelievable. You know? it's like this life just comes out of the womb and says, look at me. I'm a person, just like you. <laughs> um, but but how to let um, the dharma sink into our bones? Yeah. And 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 discover in living it that it truly does grant liberation. And in an interesting way, it has almost nothing to do with us getting what we want. It has much more to do with, um, is that so? And it doesn't mean dismiss all the skillful processes we go through in terms of grinding and opening and concentrating. It just means um, they're not the goal. They are a step on the way, a step. They are there for um, their own kind of a discovery and engagement. Um. And another um, helpful exploration in all of this is the the transformation that comes as our consciousness shifts out of the sublime serenity of retreat into what we call the normal world. (laughs) A A wonderful and deeply informative thing to study is when your mind picks up one of the tantalizing issues of your life. And you pick it up, you pick up the accompanying thoughts, you pick up the accompanying feelings, and you can feel that it's like reconstructing your body into the body of that being, you know? This is very instructive. And and you you know you can try to resist it and say no I'm staying in sublime samadhi, and <laughs> but 
what's instructive is to explore and experience what's arising. You know? Because from sitting all week, it, there's, it, it might not feel like it, but there's awareness. There's a capacity to attend. So this, to bring this attitude of, is that so? Huh? Something comes up. Rather than wrestle it to the grind and, and pin it down into, sub into serenity, um, just <laughs> experience the energy of it. You know, I, I, I experience um, how captivating it is to your mind, how stimulating it is to your emotions. And you know, when, when, when we're settled, it, it's like our environment is almost, it's almost like you can touch the air, you know. Our environment's almost tactile. It has, it has a flavor of intimacy. And then as we start putting on our issues, it's like we're like putting on ourself again. Oh yeah, but there's this me. I just had this image. Once I led a retreat, a sashin, and this person was very uh, dedicated and virtuous and, and marvelous Zen student. And then she went in and she took off her black robe and she came out in a skin-tight leather outfit. <laughs> black leather, you know, like, like Catwoman or something. <laughs> And I thought, okay then, <laughs> you're ready for action. <laughs> but it's a great thing to watch, you know. And 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 sometimes um, it's poignant, you know. It's like you pick up an issue, and then it it, it stirs the mind in a certain way. And then you see, oh, and that brought in that and that and that. You know, it, it brought in um, other attributes. Often things that uh, have their own kind of uh, agitation or discomfort. Now that my mind's activated, I'm a little bit more judgmental. Oh, now that my mind's activated, I'm starting to plan what I'm going to do tomorrow afternoon. Uh, now that my mind's activated, I'm uh, regretful about something that for the last week hasn't been an issue. So to watch that too. Watch the reactivation of the patterns of your being. Is that so? Yeah. Can the vow, can the, the, can the vow of awakening just 
whole bit. It's, it's, it's the vow of awakening is not saying, and you have to utterly, completely make it an entirely different state of being. Can you experience it? Can you acknowledge it? Is that so? Can you make contact? Can you notice what the territory of it is, what the consequences of it are? How long does it abide? Huh? Is there an insistence that says, okay, sh- sh- retreat is over. No? I'm just clocking out. I'll just, I'll count the hours until it's done. <laughs> No, this this time is juicy. There's a lot to learn. But I will end with a poem by Rilke. Whoever grasps the ten thousand contradictions of their life brings them together into a single image. That person, joyful and thankful, drives the rioters out of the palace becomes a celebrant in a different way. And presence is the guest who receives him in the quiet evenings, him or her in the quiet evenings. Presence is with you in solitude. The tranquil center of engaging with yourself. And every circle that's drawn around presence lifts him out of time on those compass legs. So maybe the rioters are coming back to the palace. We'll watch them carefully. <laughs>